welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 11, Euripides, An Outspoken Life. Last time, we concluded our review of the works of Sophocles, and in particular his Theban plays, with the thoughtful and melancholic Oedipus at Colonus. Euripides was a near-contemporary of Sophocles, but had a very different outlook on life, and produced a different sort of play, albeit broadly within the existing theatrical traditions. As we shall see, Euripides did not fit in with Athenian society in the way that Aeschylus and Sophocles did, and his reputation suffered because of this. But the power of his works still shine through. About 95 plays have been attributed to Euripides, of which 18 or 19 have survived. The 19th is a play called Rhesus, where authorship is disputed. Of the other 75 plays, there are fragments of most surviving, quite substantial sections in some cases. Still, it's only a small percentage of a poet's work from the era that survives, but on the plus side, it's more substantial than the surviving works of Aeschylus or Sophocles. The fact that more of his work survives is probably down to popularity. The more popular a work in the ancient world, then the more often it was copied. More copies means more chance of a work surviving. The copying of a manuscript by hand was an expensive business in the ancient world, performed by an expert who was usually working under a patron who was funding the work or in the context of a religious house. The texts copied were those that were considered in some way worth having, so we can draw the conclusion from this and from surviving ancient commentary that Euripides was much admired. So much so that he stood alongside Homer and Menander in the Hellenistic world in terms of popularity. These three were the heart of literary education in ancient Greece, right up to and indeed well into the Roman period. Euripides was long dead by then, and he may have rather wished for more popularity in his lifetime. His winnings in competition were, well, a bit meagre, and given his later influence, that seems a bit mean of his contemporary Athenians now. We'll look at some of the reasons for this, but a standout feature of his work that was very new and probably challenging to his audience of the day is that he manages to study the inner life of his characters in a way not seen before. Compared to Euripides, Sophocles was just tinkering with the idea of characters, getting personal, and, as we've already seen, Sophocles was much more developed in this sense than Aeschylus was. The innovations attributed to Euripides, the ability to show a character's inner world and mood, feed their way into future drama and not only into tragedy, but comedy and romance too. The intensity of his drama, particularly in his most significant works, has been seen as the direct ancestor of such greats as Shakespeare in Othello, Racine in Phaedra and Ibsen and Strindberg in their destructive and intense social dramas. The difference between Euripides and his predecessors is a generational change. He was born in about 480 BCE on the island of Salamis, so he was about 15 years younger than Sophocles and born just when Salamis had been at the site of the great battle that sealed the end of the Persian invasion. If we can believe all the details transcribed through the ages, we even know the names of his mother and father, Cleto and Menescracus respectively, who were of aristocratic or minor aristocratic origins. Quite some detail compared to our previous subjects. His father is said to have been a retailer of some sort living near Athens, but this is dubious and probably based on later satires that attempted to belittle Euripides and his origins. 
His father steered him towards athletics, having understood from an oracle that his son was destined to win laurels of victory. Euripides hated the discipline and gave it up, but he seems to have had a good all-round education and served as a torchbearer in the Temple of Apollo for a time. In early manhood, stints in the army are also mentioned. There is also evidence that he was involved in a diplomatic mission to Syracuse, but this is the only mention we have of any public service, so already we can see that his life was quite different from that of Aeschylus and Sophocles. It's reported that his talents also stretched to painting and musical composition. He mentored composers noted for their adventurous style that challenged the traditionalists. The consensus is that he was of a romantic nature, but this was tempered by his sceptical frame of mind. At some point in his youth, he moved away from a traditional religious outlook and became associated with thinkers and artists of a more socially liberal outlook, to such an extent that he seems to have had some sort of friendship with the great philosopher Socrates. There were rumours, probably again malicious ones, that said Socrates edited and improved his plays. There are better records of the fact that Socrates, who was not known as a theatre-goer, made great efforts to see productions of Euripides' plays. We have to remember that he was functioning at the height of the age of Pericles when Athens was at the pinnacle of its artistic and philosophical output, and Euripides was very much part of that. In this time, when Athens was aggressive in its attempts to build an empire, some scholars see him as notably pacifist, but I think we have to be careful here. In Athenian society, and particularly in the years of the Peloponnesian War, it would have been very difficult to be pacifist in the modern sense. As I've discussed in previous episodes, every young man, with very few exceptions, spent time in the army as the need arose, and we have reports that Euripides did some service, however unhappily that may have been. So it's probably more accurate to say that he was anti-war intellectually, and his characters in his plays do express that view. He seems particularly concerned with the brutalities of war, the sacking of towns, the enslavement of the defeated, the attitude of Athens towards its allies, and the collateral damage of war are all things that he appears to deplore. It's also possible to argue that he was anti the Peloponnesian War in particular, although I think this is more ambiguous and would have been a very difficult position to take publicly, not that this appears to have stopped him doing so entirely. He certainly favoured the scientific approach with a healthy dose of Socratic questioning, but he was also rash and expressed his opinions pretty freely by the standards of the day, putting him at odds with the mainstream society. He wrote almost entirely during times of war and at times when that war came very close to Athens. The city must have been a pressure cooker of opinions, fears, rumours and politicking through most of the period and Euripides was not afraid to let his opinions be known in that situation. We can see in the historic record at least some of the troubles that those expressed views caused him. Although he used the well-known myths as the basis for his plays, he disliked the glorification of the brutal behaviours that they espoused. It was a dislike of the primitive that also expressed itself in his views on religion, which he found to be full of barbaric and primitive superstitions that were, in his opinion, not worthy of the new Athens, which was full of highly educated and sophisticated people. Such views, along with, some argue, the enlightened position he took on the role of women and slaves in society, and all expressed with feeling, brought him into disrepute with the religious and social conservatives of the time. 
His outspoken views seemed to have had no boundaries for a while and inevitably he gained some enemies who worked on discrediting and ultimately silencing him. They never quite managed that, but he became skilled by necessity at speaking more cautiously. So much so that it's often difficult to define exactly where his stance on the subject is. On first reading or hearing, it seems to say one thing, but on closer scrutiny, an opposite meaning can become clear. He became so adroit at this that one listener could be sure he was following the traditional view of the gods and heroes, while another could read between the lines and see his subtle distaste for these traditions. At one point, he took up a more reclusive life on Salamis. There he lived in a cave where he kept an extensive library. The idea of a library in a cave, even in the kind Mediterranean climate, doesn't sit too easily, and the truth is that many of these biographical facts could be highly speculative. A cult grew up around him after his death, which could have promoted some of these biographical details to suit their own purposes, and perhaps balancing some of the stories put out by his detractors. But it it makes for a very confused picture, and very little is actually available to us with any certainty. His disagreements with society did not just take place in the philosophical or debating arenas. Aristophanes satired and ridiculed him in his plays. These included merciless parodies of lines from Euripides' tragedies, and this was fierce stuff. He was satired as a misogynist and a cuckold, and although two marriages that ended in infidelities are recorded, not to mention three sons, it's difficult to extract the truth from the satire. As the Athenian military ambitions faltered, and then the tide turned more fully against them, the city went into a period of soul-searching and the blame game began. Pericles himself found his position weakened and seriously challenged, and any freethinkers were pronounced as anti-Athenian and traitors. Euripides was included in the roundup and charged with heresy and sacrilege, but got off lightly compared to some others, as it couldn't be sufficiently proved that his characters in his plays were expressing his own views. Not the last time in history by any means that that defence would be applied to dramatists in trouble with authority. It seems that Euripides decided that the safest course was to leave Athens. Perhaps he found the new intolerant atmosphere too much to live with. Perhaps he worried seriously for his own safety given the public mood. But either way, he came to the decision that voluntary exile was the best option. This was in the 23rd year of the Peloponnesian War, so perhaps an ageing poet might be considered justified in getting a bit weary of living in a city where he never truly fitted in, and speaking against a war as best he could that might have seemed never-ending. About 18 months later, he died in exile at the court of King Archelaus of Macedon. Rumours were put about that he'd been attacked by the king's guard dog and his body torn to pieces, but these are almost certainly just the wish fulfilment of his enemies back in Athens. Following his death, there was some reappraisal of his greatness in Athens and the return of his body was officially requested. The Macedonian king refused and the Athenians had to satisfy their belated admiration by erecting a cenotaph in his honour. In its simplest form, the difference between Euripides and his two predecessors is that he was very much more outspoken and willing to challenge the religious norms publicly. Aeschylus and Sophocles did ask similar questions about the role of the gods, but only from within religious boundaries. In a fragment of a Euripides play, one character says, O Zeus, if Zeus is there, as I have only known him by report. It's an expression of doubt or even atheism that would never have been dared by Aeschylus or Sophocles. 
It's perhaps therefore not surprising that his plays were not universally liked in their time. Indeed, there are reports of riots at the Dionysia during performances of his plays, and he only secured victory there five times, one of them being a posthumous victory. At which point, I can't help thinking about those authors and musicians whose work suddenly goes to the top of the bestseller lists and music charts as soon as they die. It seems an unchanged feature of human nature that we always appreciate an artist most when they're no longer with us. Given this background, it's reasonable to wonder why his plays were ever popular. As mentioned, he was skilful at obscuring his true meanings, and his talent as a dramatist meant that the audience were still drawn to his works, even if they didn't approve of the man. He cleverly places prologues and epilogues that espouse the traditional views as bookends to a play that includes the radical, and this seems to have been enough to keep the majority well enough on side to prevent more serious consequences. The epilogues and endings also include the use of the deus ex machina to resolve the plot. Although this is often criticised as a clumsy tool for plot resolution, I don't think we should forget the dramatic effect of the machine. Wouldn't this have been as impressive to the audience of the day as a revolving stage, pyrotechnic effect or clever use of scenery is today? I think we all still like to be surprised by something we've not seen before in the theatre, or something familiar being used in a different way. And I don't see why the ancient Athenians would have not appreciated stage effects in much the same way that we still do. Even though the plays might end with the use of this convenient device a little too often, Euripides is still praised as an artist for these levels of suspense that he generates in his clever storytelling and poetry, which ranges from emotional to romantic and even lightweight. In criticism from antiquity, the passages given in the ordinary style of speech are often referred to as lalia, which translates as chatter. So, There was a great range of style in his poetry and something that had not been heard before, as far as we know. He was 25 when his first known play was produced in 455 BCE and came third in the competition. His works before the production of Medea in 431 BCE are now considered minor and many are fragmentary or completely lost, but there are a few points of interest nevertheless. The aforementioned Rhesus is a telling of Book 10 of the Iliad and is of a very romantic nature. However, its authorship is disputed and many think it's entirely by a later unnamed poet. But if it is by Euripides, it does seem to foreshadow later themes he took up, including a lament for the dead that is humanist and somewhat pacifist in its themes. Telephus is a lost play, but commentary on it identifies that the character of a beggar is dressed in rags and not the formal costume for all the performers that I've described before. This was an innovation introduced here by Euripides and picked up and then used by Sophocles. I should also note that Euripides wrote satire plays. Little of these survive and I'll be looking at the genre in a later episode in the seasons, so I won't mention those in this summary of his plays. And I'll start that summary with Medea which was first performed in 431 BCE and remains in the classic repertoire right up to today. We'll look at this play in more detail next time, so for the moment let's just say that it's the classic tale taken from Homer of a wronged woman who takes revenge in a way that is close to unimaginable. It's a great example of how Euripides manages to evoke sympathy for an individual with whatever we think of her actions and apply that as a comment on aspects of society in general. 
Children of Heracles was first performed a year after Medea and is a very minor piece and if the audience returned expecting something similar to Medea, well, they were very disappointed. The play is now regarded as nothing more than an excuse to praise Athens. Most scholars skim over it and I'll do the same. Hippolytus, first produced in 428 BCE, is a return to form and confirmed as such as it won the Dionysia that year. Phaedra, wife of King Theseus, is made to fall in love with Hippolytus. He is the stepson of Aphrodite and it's she who sets up this unwilling match because he's rejected her world of love and sexual desire for the purity of outdoor sport and has become devoted to the virgin goddess Artemis. When Hippolytus rejects Phaedra's induced advances, she falsely accuses him of rape and then kills herself. Theseus curses his son and sends him away, only to then receive news that Hippolytus has been badly injured in a bizarre chariot accident involving a bull rushing out of the sea and frightening his horses. The broken Hippolytus is brought on and, before he dies, Artemis reveals the truth, so forgiveness is possible and Theseus is released from any blood guilt. Andromache is thought to have been performed in about 426 BCE. It's the story of the aftermath of the Trojan War, given a very anti-Spartan feel. Andromache bemoans the fall of Troy and her enslavement to Achilles' son Neoptolemus. There are long argumentative speeches with Hermione, wife of Neoptolemus, before a complex narration of deceits, kidnap and murders, only gets resolved with the use of the deus ex machina. Hecuba, first performed in 425 BCE, is also set after the end of the Trojan War. Hecuba, once the queen of Troy, is now an old woman consumed with hatred. When her daughter Polyxena is sacrificed to the ghost of Achilles, and she then discovers the body of her only remaining son, she becomes fixated with vengeance. She discovers that the murderer is Polymester of Thrace, who had been her son's host. She persuades Agamemnon to allow her to take revenge, and not only blinds Polymester, but kills his two sons as well. The play ends on the prophecy that the cruel Hecuba will be turned into a female dog, and the audience were probably for once in full agreement with the playwright on that one. Suppliance was performed about 423 BCE. The suppliants of the title are the mothers of sons killed in the battle for Thebes. The women plead for the recovery and proper burial of the bodies and eventually the Athenians agree to the request. It's another play that eulogises Athens and democracy, although some see an element of irony in it. Electra, first performed in 418 BCE, covers the same ground as part two of the Oresteia, but in this version, Electra is shown as resentful to of her mother and instrumental in luring her to her death. Once the murder is done, both she and her brother Orestes, who, are, who is portrayed as the reluctant party, are struck with remorse. It's an unsympathetic yet convincing portrait of Electra and has resulted in much debate over the subsequent centuries. The Madness of Heracles is another slight work produced in 416 BCE. It's a straight telling of how Heracles is driven mad by Hera and kills his wife and children. He comes close to suicide when he recovers his senses and is taken to Athens to live out the rest of his life without any retribution. The Trojan Woman was first seen in 415 BCE and returns to the story of Hecuba and her children at the end of the Trojan War. Hecuba sees her daughter Cassandra removed to be Agamemnon's reward, 
her daughter-in-law put to slavery and her infant grandson thrown from the walls of the town. As the play ends, Troy is put to flames and the women are led away to be slaves to the victorious Greeks. It was written as an indictment of the inherent cruelty of war, but was particularly daring as it was produced only shortly after Athens had been victorious in battle with the polis of Milos. Retribution after the battle had been particularly fierce and many slaves had been taken. The similarities with the play are unavoidable. In his last decade, Euripides moved away from the purely tragic and produced work of a subgenre of tragicomedy, essentially tragedies but with a happy ending. That happy ending relies on a recognition scene where a revelation produces a change in the situation. The following plays fall into this category and are seen as the ancestor of what was to be new comedy in the 4th century BCE. Eon was produced in about 413 BCE and tells how Carusa, the queen of Athens, is married to King Xanthus, but the couple are childless. However, the queen has a son by the god Apollo, who is now a temple servant at Delphi. When mother and son meet, they feel a strong connection, but the oracle insists that the boy is the son of Xanthus. The queen becomes distraught, but then recognises the crib that she left with her baby, and all is resolved. The plot is slight, but the play probes into the nature of human suffering and the casual cruelty of the gods, so it has a darker feel than a plot summary suggests. Iphigenia in Taurus was first produced about 413 BCE and ignores the original Iphigenia story and has her saved from sacrifice by Artemis. In the play, she serves the goddess in her temple at Taurus in Thrace. Her brother Orestes is brought to the temple to be sacrificed, having been caught by a local Tyrannos. Once she recognises him as her sibling, they escape with some help from Athena. And if that sounds like quite a light piece, his next offering, Helen, in 412 BCE, is even more fluffy. Euripides takes the best-known story from the Trojan War epic, the adulterous so-called abduction of Helen by Paris, and twists it by proposing that it's only a phantom of Helen that goes with Paris to Troy, while her true physical self hides away in Egypt, fending off the amorous advances of the king there. When Menelaus encounters the real Helen on the return from Troy, he is amazed and confused, but when the phantom Helen disappears, they have a true reunion and leave Egypt to return to Greece. We only have Phoenician women from about 409 BCE in a later version and it's thought it's been much updated by another hand. Some scholars even argue that the date is later and it was written entirely after Euripides' death, copying his later style. If 409 BCE is the correct dating, then the play was written in the shadow of a big military defeat for Athens. The war was getting very close to home at this point. The story is of the post-Oedipus flight from Thebes, where, in this version, Jocasta has not committed suicide and is a main character in the play as she mediates between her sons. In another return to the myth of Argos, Orestes was produced in 408 BCE, but it's not the myth as we know it. In this version, Electra is condemned for the murder of Clytemnestra, and in revenge for Menelaus's inability to defend her, Electra plots the murder of Helen and her daughter. The plot is only resolved when Apollo appears on the deus ex machina. Iphigenia et Aulus is another play that we only have in a version tampered with by other hands. 
First produced in about 406 BCE, it's a traditional retelling of the Iphigenia sacrifice story and a return to true tragedy. It's noted for its realistic atmosphere and some poignant scenes between the main protagonists. The Bacchae vies with Medea for the best play by Euripides. Presented in about 406 BCE, it goes back to the roots of the cult of Dionysus. It's another play that we'll look at in more detail, so for now I'll just say that it shows how the arrival of Dionysus in Greece leads to frenzied excess and argues that the liberations and irresponsibilities of the cult must be balanced to preserve order. Through the centuries of criticism and comment on the plays of Euripides, his attitude to women has been much discussed, so I think it's worth a special note here, especially as he's often given a bad press in this regard. In fact, scholarly opinion falls into two very opposing camps. Those who believe he is something of a misogynist, who sees women as scheming, sexually obsessed and deceitful, and those who see the treatment of women as essentially sympathetic, particularly in their mistreatment by men. It's true that his female characters do some horrific things, but they're also ascribed some nobility and sympathy. It seems to me that Euripides was a reformer in the firebrand mould, and so it's quite possible to interpret the female characters as not without flaws, but ultimately driven to what they do by the cruelties of a male-dominated and militaristic society. Part of the problem here is that we have very little firm evidence of what life was like for women in ancient Greece. There are no writings by women from the 5th century BCE period, and all we have are the writings of elite males, with all the bias that that implies. We can glean something of the general expected behaviour patterns for women, which can be summarised as the expectation of the woman as a wife and mother first, and homemaker. She was expected to be discreet in public when allowed out, and it's evidence that they could not vote or participate in public service. We know next to nothing of the inner world of the home and female companionship. Some scholars believe that their role was similar to that of slaves as they went from being the property of their father to that of their husband, with no rights ever in their own name. However, that's not to say that free women were sold like slaves were, and in Greek society, marriage was for life and monogamous. In the Homeric tales, and therefore in the plays, we usually see aristocratic women who do have some influence on the levers of power, and in some cases get to control them, for a time at least. But this puts them outside the societal norms, and not comparable with or an expression of the normal lives of women. Perhaps the fact that aristocratic women are often consulted by their husbands in the plays and stories in important matters suggests that there was a more gender-equal past Or perhaps this is just Homer's idealising of the tales. It's certainly not the norm in Athens in the Golden Age. For the true story of women's lives, we have to look to the home, the oikos in Greek, but this is unrecorded and sadly mostly closed to us. Part of the issue here is that Euripides used these traditional stories of strong women doing terrible things to make his point, but this also perpetuates these stories and the trope of the woman who should be feared. The plays are so visceral in places that it's easy to see how some of the audience, at least, would have struggled to get past the obvious impact of the story. So it seems that Euripides had a very mixed career and in his own time was seen as somewhat unsuccessful. This is relative, of course, 
After all, he did get selected in the top three to be put into competition more than 20 times, so he was up there with the best, but usually he was the bridesmaid. And he clearly had influence, even if we can only see that by reflection. Aristophanes presumably would not have parodied in the way he did if the work of Euripides was merely that of an also-ran. My reading is that although much of his sophisticated doubt over religion, the war and the way the city was being run may have been lost on part of the audience, there was a significant portion who did get his meaning and that was considered dangerous enough to be a problem for some in the city who then actively tried to undermine his position and reputation. However commonplace his characters are, and they certainly are compared to those of Aeschylus and Sophocles, they are more than capable of expressing doubt and discussing the issues of their times through their own vulnerabilities and flaws. These flaws and failings don't result in reconciliation or a moral resolution, but in meaningless suffering, which is looked on with indifference by the gods. So, it is drama that is powerful in its sensational storylines that show the emotional effect of tragedy on the characters, so much so that some see it as borderline melodrama. It's as if Euripides took the lesson from his predecessors and turned it just enough to make something new but still recognisable. He must have been constantly probing at the edge of what was acceptable to his audience to see how far he could go. History would seem to prove that Euripides was ahead of his time. The lofty politics and religious tendencies of Aeschylus and Sophocles fell out of favour in the later Hellenistic and Roman periods where the sensationalism and emotional realism of Euripides was much more preferred. Revivals of his work were frequent in later antiquity, and he remained popular for the pithy quotes of his characters for many years to come. His career may have been mixed in his own time, but he certainly gets the last laugh on his contemporaries. Next time, we'll look into the towering presence of Medea. She is a woman who sacrificed much for her man and a good life as a wife and mother, but that all falls apart when she is replaced in his affections by ambition, and she then wreaks some terrible revenge. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) 